Welcome to the Fort Hill Community Church Sunday morning sermon taught by Pastor Aaron Manning. All right, thank you all for joining us this morning as we are in the book of 1 Timothy today. And a happy Father's Day to everyone. I, uh, I didn't even think whenever I picked the Good Good Father song, I really didn't plan that, it just kind of happened, which happens a lot actually, I've found as a leader of worship, you pick a song and it just kind of fits, and you didn't even really mean to do that. Um, but a happy Father's Day to everyone. Kat has blessed the, fa- the fathers of this church with what they always want and desire, which is bacon. So um, we do have some, I don't know if they're still, they might be gone. Uh, there might be some, some bacon treats back there. But a uh, happy Father's Day to you all. Uh, today, We're not going to have a Father's Day specific sermon. We're actually continuing in our sermon series on the church. Um, Our church, Fort Hill, has just uh, walked through the process of church membership, and we have had our first church membership meeting last Sunday and uh, looking ready to install our first church members. Praise God for that. And so as a part of that, we are working through the theology of the church on what is called ecclesiology, ecclesia, which means the church, okay? And so, so far we've worked through what the church is generally. Uh, that's the first a Sunday of this. Last week we worked through church membership. Who are church members? What is church membership? Do we see that in the Bible? And then today we're going to look at church leadership. So we have the church and we have members of the church, but who are the leaders of the church? That's what we're going to look at together today in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Okay? Unfortunately for, the, for us, the Bible does give quite a bit of direction on who should lead the church. There's a lot of teaching in the Bible on leadership within the church. Okay? Um, there are three books in particular, 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus. The Apostle Paul wrote these books to these two men who were... Uh, who were pastors, they were elders, to give instructions on how they were to lead the church. These are known as the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy, and then Titus. Paul says to Timothy, where we're going to be, that he is writing this book to Timothy. He gives us the, the reason for the book in chapter 3, verse 14. It says this, we got it right there. I hope to come to you soon, Paul writing to Timothy, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and the buttress, the truth. So so Paul is giving us his sort of theme or his mission statement for these pastoral epistles so that the church may know how to conduct themselves how the church should be organized, who the members are, and who the leaders are. So because of that, we need to take this seriously. And we're going to get into things today that are, um, in a lot of ways, very controversial. Okay, We're going to get there in the second half of the message. Um, So we're going to look at the two offices of the church. There's two mentioned here. There's a bunch of other ways that there is leadership in the church. But these are the two main ones as given by Scripture. We have the office of deacons and the office of elders. The office of deacons, the office of elders. And just a preface, this is going to be more teachy than preachy, and this whole sermon series has been more teachy than preachy. That's just kind of how it is um, as we work through church membership. 
but it's good stuff. And I'm not sure how many of you guys have ever heard a message on church membership or on elders or deacons. Something we don't really focus on a lot because we kind of want to get people in here and hype them up with the gospel. And that's good. I always want to be hyped up with the gospel too. But this is important, and it's connected as well. This is how the church is functioning, how God has established leadership within the church, okay? So let's go ahead and read, starting in verse 1 of chapter 3, the qualifications for an elder and then the qualifications for a deacon. Okay, this is what it says. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Okay, qualifications for an elder. Now we move on to deacons. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their household well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So we're going to look here in verses 8 to 13 first and deal with the office of deacons. And we just read it there, uh, verses 8 to 13. That's where we're going to be. So what are deacons? Well, we can get a good idea of who deacons are and what they do by just knowing the word. Okay, The word deacon in the Greek is diakonos, and it simply means a servant. A deacon is a servant. And it's a word that's used throughout the New Testament. Angels are described with this word diakonos. Whenever Jesus is in the wilderness and being tempted by Satan, it says the angels came and were ministering to him, diakonosing Christ, so to speak. Um, You can think about servants within a king's court. It's the same word used. And here we see Paul elevating this word from a mere verb into an office. There is an office of servants. There is an official capacity for servants, and these are deacons. A particular group of people with a particular qualification for a particular task. Okay, And it's to these particularities that we're going to look at. We see deacons first on the scene unofficially in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 6, where we get an idea of their duties. What do deacons do? What are they about? And we get a glimpse of that in Acts chapter 6, starting in verse 1, going to verse 6. There's a bit of a story here, so let's read through it together. So, uh, just preface. This is the early church. Um, The Holy Spirit has fallen on the church, fallen on, on Peter. He preached his message. Thousands of people are saved. Everyone's in Jerusalem hearing the gospel, and then issues arise. So that's what's going on here. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists 
arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So this is amongst the church in Jerusalem. Okay. And the twelve apostles summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick, up, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And when they said, Please the whole gathering, and they chose um, Stephen, a man full of faith and Holy Spirit, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. So here we get a, a glimpse of the valuable role that deacons play within the ministry of the church. The church in, in um, Jerusalem was growing, okay? I can't imagine preaching a sermon and 3,000 people come to faith, right? I got a lot of work, right, after that happens. And I got to call in the, some backup help, okay? So that, that's the context. Like, it's just a firestorm of the Holy Spirit saving people, transforming lives, and then, as always happens, issues arise within the church. I mean, we're a small church, and we have issues. I can't imagine thousands and thousands of people, um, you know, there's going to be issues. And so the issue is that there are two different kind of groups or ethnicities of Jews here. We have the Hebrews, who are sort of the native Palestinian-born Jews. They speak Aramaic, okay? And then we have the Hellenists, and the Hellenists are Greek-speaking Jews. They speak Greek. They're a different bunch of folks. And what's happening is the Hellenist widows in the church were being neglected. So there's a daily distribution, there's food that's distributed. The Greek-speaking Jewish widows were not receiving the help that they needed. And so issues arise, there's division arising. They're being neglected. And the issue for the apostles is that the apostles don't have time to deal with the issue. It says here in verse 2, the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples. So the apostles are bringing together the church, trying to address this issue, and they're saying it is not right for us to give up the preaching of the word of God to serve tables. So the apostle says, look, we have this mission, this calling of God that we have to pursue. We don't have the time to address this need. And so their response was to install deacons. Their response was to install servants. They installed a particular group of men, in this instance, to serve the physical needs of the church, the physical needs of the body. And so important is this position that they gathered the entire church together, and then they pray over these men and lay their hands on them to install them into this position of deaconship. It's really an amazing thing to see the church working out its issues by installing people within the body to care for the body. Okay, And so these men, they're men of character. This man, Stephen, in uh, chapter 6, the next chapter, this man will be stoned for his profession of faith in Jesus. These are not... Just guys that can push brooms, right? That's not it. These are uh, dignified men. These are learned men who are, have a calling to serve the physical needs, the body of the church. Stephen, if you read chap Acts chapter 7, he gives this beautiful sort of uh, apologetic of the gospel, starting with you know the Old Testament, Abraham, and moving us all the way through. He knew his Bible so much, he moved us through to have a 
make a, a defense of the sonship of Jesus Christ, that he is the Messiah. So these are you know, well-respected men of faith and, and women of faith, and we'll work through that in a little bit, who are serving the physical needs of the church so that the apostles can focus on the ministry of the Word. Now, let's go back. Now that we see the duties of, of the church, of the deacons, let's go back to 1 Timothy chapter 3, and we're going to look at the qualifications. The qualifications. Who can serve as deacons? Now, we read this. I think I might have it up there. We read this. Actually, I want to get to that point a little bit. But we read it earlier that whenever you read the qualifications of, of deacons here, What's interesting is that Paul spends a majority of his time not on the gifting, so to speak, of people who can serve as deacons, or the talents of deacons, but on the character. These have to be good folks, right? Good, solid people. That's what makes you qualified to serve as a deacon, your character. Deacons must be dignified, not double-tongued, not hypocritical in speech. They need to be self-controlled, not addicted to much wine. It doesn't prohibit alcohol here, but you can't get drunk, right? You can't be self you need to be self-controlled in money. You don't need to be greedy. It goes on from there. They need to have gospel-shaped lives, a, a character qualification here. Good Christ-loving folks. Another area that we can see if deacons are qualified is by looking at their family. It says here in verse 12, Let the deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their household well. Um, I think it's interesting. This is the same for the elders. If you want to know about a person, look at their closest relationships. How are their kids? How is their marriage? Right? And that's the part, especially the marriage piece. We don't want anyone looking at that. Right? As a pastor, and as, that's what's awesome about these the, the Word of God. As a pastor and as a deacon, as you serve in those capacities, you are opening yourself up to the church that they can weigh in because that's what qualifies you for the position. How is your marriage? How is your family? And not in like a you know judgy type of way, but like, like we, we got to know because this is what qualifies you, especially as an elder. And I don't want to jump the gun here, but if an elder's marriage is not where it needs to be, then that person does not need to be in that position. If they can't care for the household, for their own household, they can't care for the household of the church. Okay, but that's what we see. True, um, true deacons will have a solid family, solid character, a solid life worthy of the gospel. And whenever they do that, the Bible says that there is a promise made to these deacons in verse thirteen: for those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves, so they are esteemed by the church, they are admired by the church, and also they grow in great confidence in faith that is in Christ Jesus. They grow in faith, and they grow in esteem from the church. Okay, so those are deacons. Now, I want to address the, um, the topic of who can serve, as far as men and women in this uh, deacon role, because there's different opinions here, okay? And I want to talk about this um, you know, service in the church between men and women for the deacon role by looking at verse 11. Okay, I'm going to look at verse 11. I'm just going to read it. So they're, they're, this is for the deacons again. 
Their wives, talking about the husbands of one wife who was a deacon, their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Faithful in all things. Now this verse is a little tricky here because of the word wives. Okay, And there's different takes on this verse. This word that's translated wives can also be translated for women. Okay? And so if you translate it wives, then we're talking about male deacons in the church. If you translate it women, we're talking about women deacons. So the question is, is this talking about the wives of deacons or talking about the position of female deacons? That's the question that we have. I think just reading it, it sounds like to me from the context, it looks like wives is the best translation here, is wives. Um, but the other point that's made is the word likewise in the verse always introduces a new group of people, a separate group of people, okay, um, in, the, in the, the book 1 Timothy. I think it probably means wives, not women, um, but I can see where there's ambiguity. Beyond this, though, there are examples in Scripture of ladies who seem to be serving in this role of deacon, a deaconess role, okay, Romans chapter 16, I'm just going to go here. There's a lady, her name is Phoebe, and this is what it says of Phoebe in Romans 16. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Rome. And he says to the church in Rome, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant, that's the word diakonos, deaconess. Phoebe is a servant of the church at Syncre. So you have the Greek word of this woman filling this deacon-type role with the same word to the church. He's commending Phoebe to them that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her whenever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many of, many of myself as well. So Phoebe is described as being a deaconess and is esteemed in the same way deacons are esteemed in verse Timothy chapter 3. The promise of deacons is that they will gain a good standing from the church. And then Paul says to these people, the, the church in Rome, that they will welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints. So it seems like Phoebe is fulfilling this deacon role for the church in Syncre and being recommended to the church in Rome by Paul, receiving the esteem of the office. Okay? So there's different views on if women can be deacons. I would say that women can be deacons from the text here. She's doing the things deacons do and receive the esteem that deacons receive. Okay? And so our position as a church is that there can be female deacons. That's our position as a church. The different people think different things. There's one a really important scholar here. His name's Wayne Grudem. He believes opposite, so there's different spections of here. John MacArthur is another preacher. He thinks it's okay for women to be deacons. That's where I would fall. But I just want to give you both sides, okay, so you can understand this. So that's the position of our church. Um, so moving on, just applying this to Fort Hill Community Church. Deacons are a gift to the body. And deacons, more than that, me personally, are a gift to the elders, okay? Deacons are a gift to, it, to the elders. For our church, we have not officially installed deacons, but many of you are already fulfilling the role of deacons. Many of you are already serving 
the church. Uh, every Saturday, Cheryl comes in here during the ladies' uh, Bible study, and he cleans up, picks up. Um, this past Saturday, they were out, and the place was trash, so that would have been nice for him to be around. But typically, so I came in here, and I picked up, but uh, nothing against Cheryl, because they're on vacation. But yeah, he comes in here, he picks up. He's an awesome guy, he does that. Helena does a ton of admin stuff and financial stuff for the church. She's serving the church. Um, we have Susan, who coordinates the food on Thursdays. We have Hannah, that coordinates the kids downstairs. Basically, everyone in this church serves because we're so small, and you have to. You have no choice, right? I think about the church as, as far as what we need to do as a pot that's full of holes, and you only have so many fingers to fill the holes, right? And if one of the holes aren't filled, then all the water comes out, and that's kind of how it is right now. You know, we have all these things we need to do. I'm just kind of plugging you guys away because I need these holes filled, and you guys do an awesome job of that. And so, you know, from a personal standpoint, I feel the ministry of this servant role. And again, we will get to that deacon official role as we get membership in place. But I feel it in that things are just taken off my plate. My mind is freed. I don't have to think about certain things anymore because you guys have stepped up. And I appreciate that. That is a huge help to me. And it's a huge help to the church as I'm freed up to focus on more important things as far as my calling from the Lord. So thank you for that. Um, and that's, it's just awesome to see the Word of God work itself out in the ministry of the local church, okay? So that is deacon. That is the office of deacon. Now, we're going to move to the office of elder, okay? We're going to move to the office of elder. And I'm going to read for us in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. We're going to reread these qualifications and work through this very important office. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. An overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive, for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert. He may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the combination of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Now, reading through these qualifications, you might notice they're very similar to the qualifications for deacons. Character qualifications need to be a good husband, need to be a good father. But there are a few very important differences, and it is these differences that delineate the role that the elders play in the church body. And the first difference is what is the most controversial, and that's what we're going to look at today. And I'm going to spend an inordinate amount of time because I think it's very, very important, especially the day we live in. And that is the priority the, the Scriptures give on male eldership, that the eldership, this, uh, this office in, in the church is for qualified men in the Bible and not uh, for females, okay? So that's what we're going to kind of focus on and look at. I want to preface this. Again, this is a, the idea of a male-only eldership. Qualified men, we're going to get to that in a little bit, um, 
This is a lightning rod issue. Lightning rod issue in our churches, right up there with like homosexuality and abortion and all that good stuff. Many denominations in the country, in the U.S., ordain women pastors, and they've done so for decades. Um, the Lutheran Church, 1970. The Episcopal Church, 1976. The Church of England, 1992. The Methodist Church, 1956. Uh, Assemblies of God churches do. Other types of more Pentecostal type churches do. Not all of them. Congregational churches. And the list goes on. I would suspect that the majority of Christian dominations today ordain female pastors. I think probably, it might be like 60-40, something like that. Definitely more of the mainline churches. Uh, most of, uh, probably all of the mainline churches ordain female pastors. The evangelical churches, not so much, okay? So we need to look at this. We need to deal with this. This is very important, especially for the context that we're in today. Our concern is and always is, what does the Bible say? Okay, what does the Bible say? And I'll just be up front. Me and Hannah don't agree here, okay? We, she's not on, to, on like totally the other side, but there is difference even with my own household. Our concern is what does the Bible say? What does it say here? Many who are on the other side of this also argue from Scripture, but what we need to do is to look at what the Bible clearly states Understand that, interpret that as best we can, bring the rest of the Bible to bear on this text so we really can understand it, and then from most clear Scripture, be able to understand things that are less clear. That's really kind of the trajectory we want to do, okay? So that's our concern. What does the Bible say? So that's what we're going to look at. So buckle in. Let me First Timothy chapter 2, the section right before what we just read. Verses 11 to 14. Verses 11 to 14. Okay? So let's read it. This is Paul again talking to Timothy. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. There it is. There is the text. Now, before we dive in and try to unwrap our minds around this and understand this, it's important to be very clear that the Bible is unequivocal on the equality of the sexes. Men and women, men and women are equal as image bearers before God, equal in value, in dignity, and in worth. That doesn't ch change, right? I say this because the charge can be made. This view is bigoted and oppressive against women and tries to put women down. That's just not the case. We emphatically deny that. On the contrary, we say, as Scripture tells us, that men and women are made equal before the Lord, but God has brought in order to that equality. Okay, And we have in our membership packet a statement on ordered equality. That men and women are equal in every respect, but God has brought an order there. There are roles for men, and there are roles for women. There are roles for husbands, and there are roles for wives and mothers and fathers. There's an order there. And this is an aside, and let me also say, I want to be very careful and nuanced here, because I think it's very important. Um, this could be a whole other message, 
But we see that ordered equality in God himself. Remember, the Trinity. There's one God, three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. What have we been looking at in the book of John? Jesus said, I came to fulfill the will of my Father. That's what he said. The Son came to fulfill the will of the Father. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it says that God the Father is the head of his Son, the Christ. Is Jesus less than God the Father? No. But we see an order in that equality, that the Son came to accomplish the will of the Father. Does that mean that women and husbands and wives, sorry, that women and wives are here just to accomplish the will of their husbands? No, not not in the same way. That doesn't apply the same way. Again, this is a whole other message we could get into. But the fact that there is an order to this equality is not a sinful or wrong thing. We see that in God himself. And so the role that the women play within the church and wives play within their marriage is the Christ role in this respect. It's an amazing thing to see the Trinity expressed in these relationships in the family, again, another message, and in the church. So let me just say that. Um, Women and men are equal in every respect, but they're called to fulfill different roles as expressed in the church In the church, God has given primary leading and teaching responsibility to men. And that's what our church teaches. We're embracing a God-given, ordained, ordered equality of the sexes. In particular, men are called to teach and lead within the context of the local church. Okay, so let me say that. Now let's go to the the verses. Uh, Verse 11 and 12. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Okay? Now, at first blush, this sounds like ladies can't come in here and say anything. Okay? That's what it sounds like. Be submissive. I don't permit a woman to speak. She is to remain quiet. Well, that's not the case. And we know that, again, we read the text, but we bring all of Scripture in to focus on the text. In 1 Corinthians, again, I believe chapter 11, maybe 13, Paul talks about women praying and prophesying within the context of the church. Whenever they gather together, the women pray, the women prophesy. So it's not that women come in here and they can't, you just sit down and shut up and listen. That's not what he's saying, okay? What he's saying is that they are to remain quiet in these respects. In these respects. They are to remain quiet in respect to teaching and exercising authority because these are the activities that are specifically uh, delegated to men within the church. These are the distinguishing um, roles that men play as elders. And so in these respects, there are to remain quiet in teaching and exercising authority. Okay, so why is that? Why does God do this? Is this like, this does not seem right. Why is that? Okay. Why are women not called to this role by God? Well, Paul gives us the answer. So important. Verse verse 13. For Adam was formed first, and then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the one was deceived and became a transgressor. Why is it delegated this way for men to lead and teach and women to not do that? Paul looks at creation. Verse 13, he grounds male leadership in the church from the created order. 
Man was made first, and then woman, Adam, then Eve. The created order teaches us on how God wants to order leadership in the church. That's what he's saying. The created order teaches us how order in the church should be set up. This again goes back to our discussion that God has made men and women for particular tasks, for particular roles, for particular service. That is totally rejected today in our society. Throughout church history, this was never controversial, and it became controversial in the 70s. Well, what happened in the 70s, right? Countercultural things, right? And there's, there's a lot, and I want to be sensitive, um, there's a lot of abuse in leadership in the church. And it's people, pastors not leading in accordance with Scripture. It's not that the concept is unbiblical. It's that the practice of these people, these pastors, are unbiblical. Okay, so let me, let me get at that. But that should make us wonder why these churches are changing after 2,000 years of church ministry. Why are they changing now on this topic that's been so clear in Scripture for the past 2,000 years? God has given men and women specific roles. So really this debate here on men and women in the pastorate is just, a, it's just downstream from the bigger question of what does it mean to be a man, what does it mean to be a woman, as God has defined it in his word. That's a whole other sermon series. Maybe we'll get there one day. I think that'd be great to do that because there's a lot of confusion there. But this is how it is expressed, okay? So man was made first, and then woman, Adam, then Eve. That's the first reason. The second reason is this. Women are not called to fill this role as a consequence of sin. Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Women are not to fill this role as a consequence of the fall in Genesis chapter 3. It says Adam was not deceived. Adam willfully sinned. Eve was deceived by the serpent, and that has implications for how the church is structured. To me, this, is really, this point really highlights the divide that exists between the sexes in our day. And it's something that God warned us about, which is very interesting. Whenever Adam and Eve fall into sin, God hands out these curses. Okay? God hands out these curses. And he says to Adam, you're gonna, before you could just accidentally drop seeds on the ground and you'd get a, you know, a tree full of apples. Now you're going to work by the sweat of your brow. It's going to be really hard to eat, okay? And then he goes on, he pronounces curses to the serpent. You're going to slither around on your stomach. You're going to eat the dust of the earth. And then he finally gets to Eve. And this is what he says to Eve. He says, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. The curse of sin is that now enmity exists between the sexes, Okay? Your desire shall be for your husband, for the role of your husband. That word for also means against, and he shall rule over you. This God-given order of these equal people, male and female, now there's going to be strife between. That's what he says. And I think we see that expressed in our present day, the battle of the sexes that we see, especially in this question of leadership within the church. It, this is... Really, the context here is marriage, but the marriage leadership piece is connected so tightly to the church leadership piece, they're connected together, okay? The marriage leadership piece is 1 Corinthians chapter 11, if you'd like to read that for yourself. Now, I'm spending a lot of time on this because I want to equip you. I want you to see and listen to what the Bible actually says here, because this is, 
Again, very important as you try to think through what the church is and you notice these differences that exist outside of this church and different churches. The church right over here, uh, the church right beside us, that's a woman pastor. It leads there. Okay, so we're within that context. There are objections to this. People don't see the saying that I'm saying. Again, even my own wife has issues with this. That's fine. Um, I'd love to talk to you. If you have more questions afterward, come and talk to me. The main objection here is that Paul is not prohibiting women from, the minute, from, from preaching for all time and space. The objection is that Paul is only instructing Timothy that in his church, women should not serve as pastors. That's the objection. That's, this is not for every church. This is Timothy's church because there's a divisive group of ladies in the church. There's false doctrine from these ladies in the church, or maybe the ladies aren't educated. Okay, that's the objection. It's a cultural context thing. The main problem with this objection is that it just doesn't say this in the text. Uh, in, Paul doesn't say anything about another group of ladies in the church. And then not only that, he prohibits all women, not just these specific women, if there was a specific group of ladies, but all women, which would, what doesn't make sense. But the biggest issue is that Paul's reasoning for male leadership in the church is based on universal principles. It's not, it's a, it's not a cultural uh, con- context type thing. He's setting that God has given us the pattern from creation. Okay, Whenever I've read on the other side of this issue, whenever people say, well, that's not what it means because of this, this, and this, they never quote verses 13 and 14. They work through why women should be pastors, but they never deal with the operative text, which is verses 13 and 14. That's what we have to deal with. Did God give this as a pattern in creation, or did He not? Okay? And I think it's very clear that He has. Adam was formed first, then Eve. Adam was not deceived. The woman was deceived. So as we conclude this point, and I know I'm just really hitting this, and I'm sorry, it's just very important, I want to reiterate that we are dealing specifically with leadership in the church. Church leadership in this context, in this sphere. And it's not that men get to lead. It's that qualified men get to lead. Okay, Qualified men, as qualified by uh, 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 to 7. Men who are above reproach. Men who are good Husbands, men who are sober-minded, men who are self-controlled. It goes on and on and on and on and on. So, for you, this is not, a, just so you know, this is not a position that is filled by domineering men, because domineering men are not worthy of the office, as outlined by Scripture. The pastor is filled by qualified men. And now we're moving on to this last point here. What do these qualified men do? What we see in the Bible is that these qualified men, they teach, preach, lead, and serve. They teach, preach, lead, and serve. You'll notice that the primary distinction between elders and deacons is the ability to teach. That's what it says here, right in the middle in verse... Sorry, my eyes are getting old, like Chris. Okay, Uh, Verse 2 says, an overseer must be above reproach, sober mind, self-control, respectable, hospital, able to teach. That is not a requirement of deacons. Later on in the book of, this book here in Timothy, Paul tells Timothy to devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, 
to teaching. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. If you've read the pastoral epistles, you'll see time and time again, Paul focusing Timothy on the teaching. You need to guard your doctrine. And you need to be wary of false prophets, false elders out there who are trying to swerve people away from the faith. That is the the responsibility of the elder to make sure that his people are receiving the word of God as it really is. And that's what I'm trying to do here, right? to fulfill that role. Going back to Acts chapter 6, what was the reason why we needed these deacons to serve the the needs of the church? Well, the reason was because the apostles and the elders had to devote themselves to the ministry of the Word. Acts chapter 6, verse 2. It is not right that we should give up preaching the Word of God to serve tables, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. At first blush, you may think, who are these guys, right? (laughs) Who are these guys? These guys are too good to help these widows out. They can't bend over and, you know, pick, you know, do the menial stuff that they need. Who are these guys? But that's not what it is. Jesus specifically said in Acts chapter 1, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Whenever my Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be my witnesses. That was the priority, that these apostles preach the gospel, that they teach God's word. And even legitimate distractions need to be accounted for. And so what do they do? They get other people in the church to serve. And what happens? Acts chapter 6, verse 7, And the word of God, listen to that, word of God. What is increasing? What is adding to, what is growing, what is moving, the Word of God. That is what is moving. That is what is progressing in Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. Why? Because the apostles and elders that are established later on are ministering the Word. That is what they are called to do. As your pastor and as a pastor, there is immense pressure on pastors to focus on things that are not the Word of God, right? The first church I was at, we did tons of camps and outreach events and all these things, and they were great. You don't see any of that in the Bible. And I'm not against VBSs and outreaches, and if if I had more time, I would do, and we try to do more things. But my priority, first and foremost, is to preach you the Word of God, is to bring you the Word of God. Why is that? Because God grows you by His Word. That's how He does it, through his word. So it's incredibly clarifying to me what is my priority from God to you as your pastors to bring you God's word. In my situation, you guys know I have a job that I work at majority of the week. I have little kids. I have very little time, okay? How am I going to best use my time? What is best for you? By scripture, I see what's best for you is that you hear biblically faithful sermons. And so I give my time to that as called by Scripture to teach, preach, lead, and serve. And that brings me to my third, well, not my third point. Yeah, my third point. Um, The disposition that elders are supposed to have towards their people, they're called to be shepherds, okay? The word pastor means shepherd. And I just want to read this in 1 Peter chapter 5. This is what Peter says to the elders in the church. 
First Peter chapter 5, as we're trying to wrap our head, what do elders do, what do deacons do, and then what's the disposition of the elder to the church? This is it, okay? First Peter 5 verse 1. So I exhort the elders among you, okay, there's our, our important audience, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, this is Peter talking, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, so as someone with authority, as an elder speaking to elders, and as someone who's actually seeing Jesus and is hopeful for the future to come, this is my word to you, what you need to focus on. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Shepherd the flock of God, the people of God. Exercise oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. At the end of the day, Pastors, preachers are shepherds. We're not professionals. There's a book with John Piper. Men, we're not professionals. I'm not a professional pastor. It's not how it works. I'm a shepherd over sheep. Shepherding people under the shepherd, which is Christ. Under shepherd, under Christ. All I'm doing here, all I'm called to do is to lead you to the shepherd, Jesus. That is what I'm called to do, and I'm called to do it through the ministry of the Word and through prayer, to equip you to serve and to follow Christ, to come alongside me as we pursue Christ together in evangelism, discipleship, and all the ways that God has called His church to be. Jesus is your true shepherd, and He has installed me underneath Him to fulfill that role in your life. doesn't mean I'm perfect. As we call more elders, it doesn't mean they'll be perfect when... If and when you leave this church to another church, it doesn't mean that that person will be perfect. But what I want you to see is that this is what you should expect and want, what the Bible calls you to expect and want from an elder. Someone's going to preach God's word for you. Someone's going to pray for you. Someone's going to love you by shepherding you as, as a part of his flock. That is it. Jesus, at the end of the day, is the one that we are running to, and we run to him through faithful shepherds. Jesus is the one who has died for his church, and I, by God's grace, have been called for caring for that church until he returns. So you really need this biblical view of shepherding because that person in your life is going to have such an impact on your relationship with God. I mean, that's it. That person, that elder in your life is going to have such an impact on your relationship with God. We are not entertainers. We're not motivational speakers. We're not program coordinators. We're not even visionary leaders. We are shepherds. Shepherds smell bad, right? Because <laughs> they get into the mess of people's lives. Shepherds are dirty. Shepherds get into the muck and the mire. That's exactly what Jesus did for us. That is the gospel. That we were so bad in that muck and the mire. I, I saw a picture of a, a, actually a video of a sheep the other day. It was stuck in a massive trench, and a shepherd, I guess, came by and was, got the sheep out of there, and the sheep jumped out of the trench. It was jumping around and jumped and fell back into the trench on the other side not two seconds later. That's what we do, right? That is our proclivities, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave. 
the God I love. That is why the gospel is such good news. Because we're prone to do all these things, shepherds, pastors included, and yet Christ comes and has died for us and has resurrected for us and has shown us and made a way for us to be reconciled to God, to find forgiveness in Him, and to be brought in to the church, to be added to the number of those being saved, and He's installed deacons and elders to lead those people under Christ. That is how it works. And praise God for that. And so we as a church, and I as your pastor, have full confidence in God's word to lead us how we need to be led, awaiting the day that Christ returns. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I just want to thank you for your word. I want to thank you for your son. I want to thank you for your gospel. I want to thank you that you know we, we do not have to grope around in darkness on these issues. We just need the boldness to believe your word and lean into it and be honest and real with it, Lord. And every step of the way, just rooted in Jesus for the easy things and for the hard things, especially in these texts and in our time, things that rub up against what we see and what we might even feel. Lord, the truth is, if we didn't have your word, we would all be sheep led astray. We already are that, Lord. But you have come and you have given your son and brought your son who has sent to this world apostles, prophets, elders, pastors, evangelists, and teachers as a gift to the church to equip the saints for the work of ministry. I pray that as a church we would take seriously these biblical offices, Honor them as they're called, Lord. Work through these things together, Lord, and be patterned after your words so we be healthy people as we are a witness to Christ in this place. You have blessed us, Lord. You have blessed me and my family. You have created a family, brought a family here at Fort Hill Community Church. We are growing in that blessing, Lord. Thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for this day that we can remember you together, remember Christ together, the goodness of Jesus in our lives. I pray for those that are away from our body today who are traveling and on vacation. We pray for them, Lord. We love you. We thank you. We do not take any of this for granted. And we pray and sing all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. You've been listening to the Sunday morning sermon taught by Pastor Aaron Manning at Fort Hill Community Church in Gorham, Maine. For more information about Pastor Aaron or Fort Hill Community Church, visit us on Facebook or check out our website at www.forthillchurch.com.